Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following lesson is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Wednesday evening Bible study. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. All right, well, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. It's great going through the book of Acts. As a preacher, I always say my favorite book of the Bible usually winds up being the one I'm studying to speak or preach because there's just so many. You just see why God had this book and what it contributes to our knowledge of God and ourselves and eternal life. Uh, and uh, it's just really neat. But this is the second of three messages from Acts chapter 2. And if you've missed any of the messages, the two that we did in Acts chapter 1, and then the third one that we've done so far from the first part of Acts chapter 2 there, uh, a reminder that uh, we put those things on uh, the podcast uh, channel and the website. Um, I'm not sure uh, we're completely up to date with those, but uh, we tried real hard and got a good team doing that. But uh, So those things are available if you've missed those and want to go back to them. But this is the second of three messages from Acts chapter 2 about what happened on the day of Pentecost when the church of Jesus Christ was born. So last week we looked at verses 1 through 21. And the disciples were praying together there in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. Day of Pentecost was an ancient Jewish festival that celebrated the beginning of the spring wheat harvest and commemorated when Israel had received the law on Mount Sinai. And that key day in Jewish history then was going to be a big day in the early church's history because it's really the birthday of the church. So suddenly there was a loud sound and something like a rushing wind filled the house and what was happening was they were receiving the power that Jesus had told them about in Acts 1.8. Remember Acts 1.8? Wait in Jerusalem. And uh, let me just read it so I get it all the way right. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So the promise had come. And they were receiving the power as the Holy Spirit was coming upon them. And all 120 of them that were praying there in the upper room were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak foreign languages. Uh, the occurrences here in the book of Acts when it says speaking in tongues are of being able to speak a language that other people would know. And as you speak it, they would know what you were saying. So as a multinational crowd of Jews gathered to see what the noise was, they heard their own language all of a sudden being spoken by the 120 and they wondered what was happening. And then the Lord having used that to gather the crowd, Peter spoke to them either in Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek. He spoke to them in a language that they all understood. And first he quoted the prophets Joel, Joel's promise about the future day when God would pour out his spirit on all humanity. So his message he read the text first. He read about what it says in Acts 2.16 is a reiteration from Joel chapter 2, so verses 17 down through 21. He's reading his text, and that's what we looked at last time. And he quoted the Joel's promise about the future day when God would pour out his Holy Spirit on all humanity. And Peter told them, that's what's happening before your very eyes. God's pouring his 
spirit out. That's why these men were able to speak and the women were able to speak these other languages and why you heard them praising God and giving their testimony in languages you understood. That's why you've gathered for this big moment here. And so we saw verse 21 says, and it shall come to pass that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that's where we ended last time. And now we're going to pick up and read verse 21 again, but all the way down to verse 42 as we continue on here in this uh, long chapter. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you, by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it, by death. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Verse 29. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the truth of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we were all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what should we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, and there's no place afar off from Jerusalem than Danville, Virginia, to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, the apostles' teaching, and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. The message is in the name of Jesus. So, there's a sermon in this passage, and one of the things we love about the book of Acts is it not only tells the history of the early church and how they went about sharing Christ, but it gives us several of the messages, that uh, an abbreviated version of the messages they preached. Uh, and so we get to see Peter preach, we get to see Paul preach, and that's cool because it gives us an idea of what was their theme. And their theme was Christ 
buried, died, buried, and resurrected so that we could uh, turn to him, believe in him, and be saved. And so they, wherever the text they used, they made a beeline for the cross. But the sermon in verses 22 to 36 is actually an exposition. It's Peter's exposition of verse 21. Um, some people look at this and they say, well, he goes here and he goes there, but he's really doing the same thing. In verse 21, he gave them the great finish of Joel chapter 2 passage that he read from. It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. When Joel said it, he said, whosoever shall call on the name of Yahweh will be saved. And Peter's brilliant message here is basically preaching to them, expositing from the text of Joel and a couple other texts about why they need to connect those scriptures with what they know about Jesus and what he had just done for sinners. And he wants them to come out of this knowing that they need to call in the name of Jesus to really get to know Yahweh and be saved, right? So it's really wonderful. Uh, Joel had said, whosoever calls in the name of Yahweh will be saved. Two implications from verse 21. And we were in this a little bit last week, but just one more time we'll say it here. In verse 21 when he says, whosoever calls in the name of Yahweh will be saved, the name of the Lord will be saved. The first implication is, if you call in the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. What hope for the world? A lost world has a Savior. You call on his name, you'll be saved. But the second implication is, you better get the name of the Lord right or you won't be saved, right? You can't call on the name of Buddha and be saved. Uh, you can't call on the name of Muhammad and be saved. You can't call on the name of a cult leader, a preacher, a pope, and be saved. Um, and you better make sure that uh, now that Christ has come and done for sinners what he did, and risen from the dead and gone back to heaven, you better make sure that you understand who Jesus really is and you're turning to faith in him because he himself said, no one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. So verses 22 through 36 are about one thing. Peter's got one main thing he's driving at, getting the name of the Lord right. The name of the Lord is Jesus. So three proofs that Jesus is the Messiah and Lord. Peter just walks them through this beautifully. The first thing he does is in verses 22 through 24, he talks to them again about Jesus' perfect life, his atoning death, and his resurrection. So the fill in the blank there is the word perfect, his perfect life. And everyone in this room and everybody listening to me and has been listening to me understands that almost all of us know enough about Jesus to lead somebody to Christ. Uh, we know the problem they have because they're sinners. And then what you want to do is be able to say, hey, you're the sinner. God has provided a way for you to be saved. He's provided a person who died to save you. And so that's where you just start remembering things that you know about Jesus. The Bible says that he'd always existed. Even the great Christmas prophecy of him being born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, includes the concept that his goings forth are from of old, from of everlasting. He's going to be born in Bethlehem, but this guy goes way back before that. John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then down in verse 3, it says, everything that was created was created through Him. So this Word, this Jesus, is the creator of all. You don't get any bigger God than creator of all, right? And so when John 1, 14 says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, my goodness. So when you're talking about Jesus, you're talking about that this is God who came to earth, the incarnation, the enfleshment of the Son of God. He came as a baby. He came as uh, a man. And he 
had a virgin birth. The Holy Spirit, Luke 1 and uh, Matthew go into these details and stuff. Um, he was born of a virgin. And the Holy Spirit was responsible for um, probably giving all 24 chromosomes, not just the 12X, but the 12Y as well, and the 24 chromosomes there that were put in. So Jesus was born. He was born a man, a second Adam. But unlike the first Adam who sinned, Jesus never sinned. So you do want to talk about his perfect life and how he never sinned. And he actually, in one passage, says, Who here can accuse me of sin? <laughs> now, I've only been with you guys for five years. But if I, can't, if I looked to you guys and said, uh, who, here can, uh, who, who here has got any dirt on Danny Campbell? All of you had something to say. You know, I've seen you be cross or do this or that or the other. You know, you've seen some evidence of sin, and I would for you too. We've known each other long enough to see those things. You know? And uh, we're all sinners before God. But Jesus was not a sinner. And so, so he was born sin-free, and during his lifetime, at every place along the way that we blow it, he didn't blow it. And the Bible makes a big deal about that, right? So his perfect life, he, he, uh, where Adam and Eve blew it in temptation by Satan, he defeated Satan. Um, Israel also had some pretty big failures in the wilderness, but Satan had to depart from Jesus. Jesus had whooped him during the temptations. And Jesus continued to whoop him and live that perfect life. Well... Uh, you know that that corresponds to the perfect spotless lamb they had to sacrifice in the Old Testament to be a temporary covering for sin. A blemished lamb, a lamb with some kind of defect in it, could not be a sacrificial offering, a sacrifice to uh, die in the blood count uh, for temporary removal of sins, all that looking forward to the time when the perfect man would come. Since Jesus didn't sin... Uh, he was the perfect sacrifice. So John the Baptist looked and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he knew he was coming to make that sacrifice. His love made him willing to come to earth and make that sacrifice. So you talk about his, that he was always existent. You talk about his perfect life and why he needed to be perfect and sinless, unlike all of us. And then you want to probably put in there somewhere when you're talking to people, you know, uh, if he wasn't God, if he was just a man, his perfect life would have made him only to be a sacrifice for one person's sins, right? Um, it could only have been one to one. If I'm not perfect, but if I was, and I chose to be a sacrifice for you, I could only do it for one of you, not all of you. But if God comes to earth and meets the credentials of perfection, being sinless, and he's willing to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, then that sacrifice can be applied to anybody he chooses to apply it to. And the economy of the gospel is that the offer's freely given to everybody on earth, but you've got to believe, right? You have to want him to save you. Um, if you continue shaking your fist at heaven and saying, I'll try standing before judgment on my own, uh, then he'll just pass on by, right? So his sacrificial death is sufficient to save everybody that's ever lived. But it's efficient to save only those who choose to receive his offer of salvation and to make him their Lord and Savior by receiving him, believing in him, following him. So the resurrection was him sticking the landing. He died, he rose from the dead, and he said, I'm the first one, and if you believe in me, you'll rise too on the last day. Yeah, you'll have a physical death, but 
you won't have a spiritual death. You won't have the lake of fire. Revelation 20 connects the second death with the lake of fire and people having eternity in hell who never turned to the Lord. So he said, if you believe in me, you'll die, but you'll live after that. And uh, you'll be part of all that God's going to do going into the future. So first Peter goes into that, his perfect life, his death and resurrection. Verse 22, right after saying, whosoever calls the name of the Lord, he brings their attention to Jesus the Nazarene. He goes right there. And they were all still abuzz uh, talking about Jesus. He starts where they were, the truth that a man named Jesus had done great things. Um, some cults would say, why doesn't he state here Jesus' deity? Well, he's about to do that. But Peter was also a master fisherman. And Jesus had predicted that when Peter followed him, he'd make him a what? Fisher of men. So Peter had known if the first thing he did was stand up and say, you just heard these guys speak another language. Jesus is God. They just, they just started, they just stoned him there for blasphemy, right? Um, so instead, he builds it up a little bit. He starts uh, by building from Jesus's humanity to his deity. And David and I and was... Yeah, whoever was with us in Taiwan, we heard a pastor over there give a brilliant uh, uh, doing that for us, doing some of the same things Peter's doing here. He builds from Jesus' humanity to his deity. Um, and the reason he did that is because there are gods all over China, all over Taiwan, little things they worship and say, uh, but, but they're not connected to fact. They're not connected to history. They're not connected to reality. And so how does... The New Testament start by connecting Jesus to the genealogical records that prophesied the God-man would come, the Messiah would come. So he says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. I'm going to tell you about the Messiah, and he is in the family line of Abraham and David. Luke goes even further back, that genealogy takes it all the way back to Adam, right? connecting him with time. So you see what he does there. He says, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. He actually had lived in Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. So he's going to build to his deity, but he starts with the fact that this was, that there had actually been a Jesus, and many of them knew that because they'd heard him teach or they'd seen him work a miracle. And uh, they'd seen his uh, contending with the religious leaders, and uh, some of them had actually looked on as he was crucified. If he had started by saying, Jesus is Yahweh to this crowd, they would have stoned him to death before he could get far enough for the Holy Spirit to convict them. But then he reminds them that the man named Jesus had done incredible miracles in their sight, including healing people, casting out demons, even raising the dead. When he says, you yourselves know, he lets us know that the people in Jerusalem were still talking about what Jesus had done. So uh, what a great, uh, you know, it, it's amazing happening. Some of them had been there for Passover, seen Jesus die. They were going to stay through Pentecost, and now this great moment is coming. Look again at verse 23. Peter refers to Jesus' atoning death for sinners. So he says there in verse 23, Him, Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Um, your Jewish leaders, he's talking to a Jewish audience here, your leaders had plotted with Roman authorities to crucify Jesus. But I love how he says something bigger was going on. God foreknew what would happen. God knew beforehand, right? This was all part of God's plan to do for sinners what they couldn't do for selves. God's plan of redemption for sinners was being worked out. 
in verse 40, we learn that Peter's sermon included many other words. So this is the abbreviated version here, but we get the highlights, and the Holy Spirit, writing through Luke, wanted us to know that uh, when you talk about Jesus, get to those main key points of what he's done uh, for sinners, and that's what's happening here. Um, perhaps he also reminded them at that point of Isaiah's prophecy, the great prophecy of the death of the Messiah for sinners. Turn to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. If we backed up to Isaiah 52, verse 13, we'd see that's really where this talk of the death of the Messiah for sinners starts. And in about 20 verses, there's about 20 different references to that atoning death. I'm just going to read you about the death and the prophecy also of the resurrection. So verse 5 says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Look also at verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord, it pleased Yahweh to bruise him. He has put him to death when you make his soul an offering for sin. But he shall see his seed, he will prolong his days. Well, that's a prophecy of the resurrection. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. He'll see one by one throughout the years as people turn to Christ in faith. He'll get to see his atoning death. Uh, have that saving significance in their life, and he'll be satisfied. By, the knowledge my, by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, for he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul into death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. So what they had meant for evil... God had used for good, the sacrifice of Jesus for the sins of the world. Now that's the way it was predicted before Jesus came. Let's turn to Romans 3 briefly here, the book after the book of Acts, Romans 3. And many of you for some type of witnessing plan have memorized Romans 3.23, and that's good. Every once in a while, read from Romans 3.23 to the end of, uh, for a few more verses, because it really is the, um, the message of the gospel in miniature there. So I'm going to read you Romans 3.23, and we're going to go down through verse 26. So Romans 3.23, some of you have it memorized. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's why we need a Savior. We're being, but being justified freely by His grace, the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. So how are we justified? Not by trying to do better ourselves, but by based on what Christ did for us, right? Well, look at verse 25. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood, atoning sacrifice by his blood, through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness. Now, this is a key phrase that you ought to have in your mind somewhere, that Jesus might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Satan's not going to stop accusing. He's going to say before God, God, you're either not loving or you're not fair. 
<laughs> so he's he, he was willing to take it either way God wanted to take it, right? God could have just said, I'm going to be merciful to all sinners because I love them that much. And um, Satan then would say, you're not fair. You're not righteous. They've got a penalty they can't pay, and the penalty needs to be paid. So if you let them off, you're an unjust judge, right? He'd have been perfectly willing to take that tack. Um, and if God just said, well, they really all have sin, so they're all just going to go to hell, Satan would have said, well, you're not very loving, are you? you know? And this is where Muslim especially theology falls completely flat and short. There are 114, I think, 114 surahs or chapters in the Quran. All but one start with a plea that Allah will be merciful, right? A prayer for Allah to be merciful. But nothing within Islam gives God an objective basis to be merciful that would allow God to still be called just if he is merciful. Do you understand what I'm saying? Uh, so we've, there's been a lot of court cases recently on the TV and things like that. And suppose that uh, we were uh, there at the courthouse and, and Jim had really done something wrong, you know, and y'all had all shown up to see Jim get what's coming to him, right? And if the judge came in that day and said, I'm feeling really merciful today, so I'm going to sort of old Jim off, you know, uh, what would you all say? Well, that's not fair. He's guilty. He did it. There needs to be a, a punishment for this. And uh, so if the judge in that case is merciful, he's certainly not just. What Paul is saying in Romans 3, 23 through 26, because of the cross... God's love and justice intersect at the cross. Because of the cross, Jesus himself has stepped forward to bear the penalty that's due to sin, the debt we couldn't pay. He steps forward to pay it. And so when Satan goes to the accuse of the Father and say, the debt didn't get paid, he has to shut his mouth when he thinks about the cross. Right? For everybody that believes and identifies with Jesus, the penalty was more than paid. Their sin was dealt with by Jesus. And uh, so God can both say the sin has been dealt with at the highest possible price, the death of the Son of God, God the Son, and he can also express love to those that take him up on the offer. That's why there really is a, a cosmic scales out there. Every sin has to be dealt with. And Adrian Rogers used to say it, I like to repeat it, every sin will get dealt with one of two places. On the cross, for those who recognize that they're sinners and let Jesus deal with their sin, or if they refuse, their sin will carry forth to the great white throne judgment and they'll go to the lake of fire in perfect justice. Every sin gets dealt with at the cross for those who believe or the great white throne judgment, the lake of fire for those that don't. You say, Danny, I, I don't know. John 3.36, the one who believes has life, comma, but the one who does not believe will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on them. So it's not, our message is not because of Jesus, everybody is forgiven. Our message is because of Jesus, everybody can be forgiven. But you've got to, as a sinner, turn to him in faith. That is the way to access eternal life, the forgiveness of your sins. And if you don't, so every once in a while, somebody gets a little too smart for themselves and say, well, he died for everything. So, you know, uh, but the Bible is very clear. Sufficient to save all, efficient only for those who actually do receive the offer of salvation. Well, back in Acts 2, look at verse 24. 
whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. So Peter states that Christ is risen from the dead. Impossible for the grave to hold the Son of God. Everyone there knew that Jesus' tomb was empty. Uh, debate was raging about what had happened to Jesus' body, right? This is only 50 days after the events of the cross and the resurrection. And Peter boldly proclaims that Jesus has risen from the dead. And then he makes his second point about Jesus being Messiah and Lord. So the second one is Jesus is the son of David, fulfilling David's prophecy. And that takes from verse 25 down to 32. First, he quotes from Psalm uh, 16 verses 8 through 11 in Psalm 16. So he's brought in Joel the prophet. Now he brings in David's words in Psalm 16. And David had written in Psalm 16 that God would not leave his body in Hades, the place of the dead. Um, now obviously David wasn't speaking about himself uh, because they could go and visit his tomb. They knew that in his tomb a body was decaying, the body of David. So if they dug his body up, they would have seen his bones. Psalm 16 had said the Holy One would not undergo decay. And so the Holy One that David had spoken about in Psalm 16 was thus a reference to the Messiah, right? And that's how Peter, in brilliant exposition, says, David wrote about something that doesn't make sense about himself. It could only be a reference to, uh, to the, the Messiah to come, the son of David. And in a moment, he quotes Psalm 110, which is the most quoted passage from the Old Testament into the New is Psalm 110. The, both the part about the Lord has said he's a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, a priesthood that predates the Levitical priesthood, but also that passage where Jesus says, uh, or, or David says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit, sit, it, uh, sit him, uh, beside me until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. And um, remember how Jesus did this? He said, David calls him Lord. How can he be his son if he's talking to him as the Lord, right? And so Peter's getting into a little bit of that same thing here. He's going through how Jesus himself had taught him about Psalm 16, Psalm 110, etc. So Peter states that David joined Isaiah in proclaiming that Messiah would be resurrected from the dead, that after death his days would be prolonged, that his body wouldn't undergo decay. By the way, that itself is something that corresponds to the threefold festival that they'd celebrated 50 days before that. They had celebrated the Passover, right? Celebrating the deliverance from Egypt because the blood was over the doorpost. The second day, the Feast of Unleavened Bread started. And unleavened bread doesn't have any yeast in it, right? It's not corrupt. It stays more like a cracker than a piece of bread expanding. On the third day, they would start and celebrate um, the um, Feast of First Fruits, the first of the um, barley harvest. Pentecost celebrates the first of the wheat harvest. So Christ rose from the dead, and now we've got another harvest celebrating all those others that will be raised. So it's kind of neat how all that uh, works out. So um, good preaching here by Peter as he connects with the scriptures of the Old Testament. So the third proof he had is Jesus is alive in heaven and has poured out the Holy Spirit today. The religious leaders thought they had done with their Jesus problem, and Peter says, we're back. He promised, and here it comes. Joel 2 had said a day like this would come. You just saw it. You just saw people that don't know your language speaking your language, speaking words you understood about Jesus and about God and how to know him. And now I'm going to bring it all together in one language you do understand. 
Uh, look at verse 32. Peter says, um, This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. So we're all witnesses here too. He's exalted the place he shares with the Lord as Psalm 110 speaks of. These miracles you have seen and heard today prove it. And, and here's what he's getting at. Joel had said, whosoever calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus says in John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Um, and they understood. He said, before Abraham was, I am, right? Which is be terrible grammar, <laughs> unless he is the I am, the one that was, is, and is to come, like we've been talking about in Revelation. So he's basically impressing on them, listen, you know that you need to call on the name of Yahweh to be saved. Yahweh has visited us. He is the Messiah. He's the son of David, and you killed him. You killed the source of life, the one that could bring you eternal salvation. All you did was ensure, though, the human body of Jesus would receive the same exaltation as divine self had always had. Well, the Holy Spirit takes it from there. Verse 37, the Holy Spirit convicts the crowd. So God the Holy Spirit is the constant in all this. And the same thing is true when we speak to people today. He had inspired the words of the prophets that became scripture. He had baptized and filled the 120 in the upper room. He had spoken through the 120 to draw the crowd. He had spoken through Peter as he preached. John 16, 8 had said that the Holy Spirit, when he came, would do three things. Do you remember what they are? How does the Holy Spirit convict the world? What does he convict the world of? Sin and righteousness and judgment to come. So it's interesting how Romans 1 says, you won't go anywhere on earth where people don't feel guilty about stealing something or lying about something or committing sexual sin. The Holy Spirit works around the world to convict people that they're sinners and also of the fact that they aren't righteous. And so people are looking for righteous. They invent their own standards. Remember Ted Turner made his own ten version of the Ten Commandments and stuff up? So people are realizing there's a standard they butt up against and they try to invent their own, but their conscience really won't let them do that or others won't let them do that. And so the Holy Spirit's constantly telling us that there's a lack of righteousness, but then he also somewhere in there gets us a word about Jesus through a preacher, through a Bible portion read, and we realize, ooh, the Bible says Christ has the righteousness that I lack. So the fact that we're sinners, the fact that Jesus is the righteous and holy one who never sinned, loves us anyway despite our sin, and of judgment to come, that we need to somehow turn to him. So he convicts us of our need of Christ through sin, the provision of Christ through the gospel, and then the fact that time's ticking. We don't want to leave this planet without receiving Christ and turning to him judgment to come. And he had. So now they realized they were sinners before a holy God. Their sins were responsible for Christ's death. And they all pierced to the heart. What do they cry out? What shall we do? Yeah, I love that verse. Isn't it great? He says, verse 37, When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, "What, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Help us, help us. Whenever I preach, I try for there to be three things present. I want them to know that I love them, whoever I'm speaking to. I love them because God loves them and I'm a messenger of love from the Lord. I want them to know truth. 
the truth of the text I'm preaching, what it says. I want to handle the word accurately, right? Love truth. And many of those passages you handle call people sinners that need to repent. There's some something that you need to act on in some way, in belief or in faith or in action, right? And so I want them love, truth, and hope. I want to present the hope that if any sinner realizes their need and turns to the Lord, instead of judgment, they get forgiveness and they get restoration. And love, truth, hope, hopefully is in every message, every interaction I have, all those things. So verses 38 to 42 is what all sinners need to do in the name of the Lord. And this is very familiar to you all, but Peter said to them, repent. That's what you need to do. And let everyone, every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins and forgiveness of sins. And you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, Peter puts them all together there. And of course, um, it, it's so beautiful what he says. Acts 2.38 is such a great verse. In essence, what he does is he calls for an inward response to be followed by an outward response. And that squares with what all the theological doctrinal teaching of the rest of the New Testament says, that anybody that turns to Christ is first going to have an inward response, and then there's going to be an outward response. The inward response before God, the outward response before people. So he calls sinners to repentance. And we're going to talk more as we go along about what repentance means. And you know it's a constant theme of mine, too, about getting the word repentance right. So you've heard some of these things before. To repent is to do what? It's to change your mind. The, the word is metanoia in the Greek, and it literally means um, to change your mind. Um, and uh, so you change your mind about yourself. You're not okay. You know, there was a book, I'm okay, you're okay. Well, uh, repentance starts by saying, I'm not okay. You're not okay. We're sinners before a holy God. We think of ourselves. We're selfish. We don't want to glorify God. We don't want to do his will in our life. We want to argue with what he's told us to do in the book. So a change of mind. You start with yourself and say, I'm a hell-bound sinner uh, if, if you haven't turned to the Lord. And if you have turned to the Lord, you say, I'm a grace-saved sinner <laughs> who, who still has all those tendencies and want to do what I want to do instead of what God wants. And so uh, Martin Luther in his 95 Theses, when he not, nailed that on the door at Wittenberg, he basically, number one was that all the Christian life is a life of repentance. It is a constant lining yourself up with what God wants for you. You're, it's a big yield sign to the Lord, right? It's a change of mind. You change your mind about Jesus. You know he's not just a man. He's the God whose great love uh, had him come to earth to be an atoning sacrifice for my sins. Uh, and then you change your mind about salvation. Any thought that you can earn it, uh, you throw out. Uh, all you can do is throw yourself on the mercy and grace of Jesus and rely only on he and his name for salvation. So to repent in the context Peter's talking about it here, um, is to go from any thought that I could earn God's merit or favor through self-effort or through trying harder and instead say, hands up, I'm guilty. Don't shoot God, save me instead, right? Hands up, don't shoot. Save me instead, Lord, I'm guilty. Um, I'm relying only on you, Jesus, for eternal salvation and guidance in this life. I put John 1.12 there for you. A person who has repented uh, wants to receive salvation from Jesus. Uh, so... You know, as we go along in the New Testament, we find the key words that go along with the gospel. Here he doesn't use the word believe, but believe is part of it, isn't it, right? Uh, you uh, 
For God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son, Jesus, that if you believe in Him, you shall not perish, but have everlasting life. A person who has repented has believed. John 1.12 says, As many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. So a person who has repented has believed and they've received. That's what they've done inwardly. They've said, Yes, Lord, I need You. Please save me. And they turn to Him in salvation. There are some people in our generation that quibble with um, whether or not there should be a sinner's prayer to start your faith in the Lord. Uh, I don't have any um, quibble at all. The scriptures are full of sinner's prayers. Uh, people that needed Jesus said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Um, prayer is the language of faith. And so what does Romans 10 say? If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised from the dead, you will be saved. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's here next too. It's also, and so when you do that, what are you doing? You're saying a sinner's prayer. You're acknowledging you can't, but God can, right? And you're returning to him. So I think there's sinner's prayers throughout the scriptures. Uh, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom, right? Today you'll be with me in paradise. So God responds to the sinner's heart and prayer is the language that vocalizes the need to the Lord and he responds to that faith and that prayer with his salvation. And so that's the inward response. The first outward act called for after salvation is to be baptized in his name. Now it's interesting in the book of Acts it talks about being baptized in the name of Jesus um, and here we really want to connect with that word authority. Um, if you go on, in, in those days, a king would send somebody, uh, a messenger to a general, um, and the messenger would go in the name of the king under the authority of the king, right? So we, we don't want to get confused about whether it's this or what Matthew 28 says, be baptized in the name singular, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're to be baptized in the name of the triune God. We connect with that through what it says here, to be baptized in the name of Jesus, to be baptized under the authority of Jesus. In other words, it's connecting us with John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So Jesus has said, if you believe, if you repent, you'll be saved. If you believe, if you receive, you're saved. And then as a new believer, you want to be baptized under the authority of Christ. He's given you this uh, drawing to himself. And of course, we use the triune name. Uh, it, I just want to keep you from any thought of it's one versus the other. So name communicates authority, right? You're going, the only reason you have to believe uh, that you're saved is faith in Christ. And now you're being baptized in his name. But that's also the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, now in verse 42 it says those first disciples devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and we have that teaching from the book of Romans to the book of Revelation and that's where we go when we're trying to get God's final word and clarification on any doctrine in the Bible. So those writings, when you look at the, um, all the doctrinal teaching given to us by the apostles, they make it clear that the act of baptism itself does not save us as much as some insist on that. Uh, they, they really are pointing to the outward act rather than the inward reality uh, that leads to the outward act. And, you know, I love to baptize new believers in the name of Jesus, but if you have not believed, the act of baptism is just getting you wet, right? And so, uh, you know, we know you can be saved without being baptized because that's what happened to the thief on the cross. He didn't have a chance to get baptized. He said, remember me, and the Lord did, right? Um, 
So we want to push back on whether it's the Catholic version of that or the Church of Christ version of that that believes in baptismal regeneration, that the physical act of baptism saves. Catholics teach it. Church of Christ teaches it. They just disagree on whether it's an infant or an adult. Um, but, uh, so we push back on that. But let me quickly say um, the, the Bible's beautifully clear on the fact that true believers will want to be baptized as the outward expression of their faith and also the incorporation of them into covenant responsibilities as part of the people of God. Uh, and so um, we really want to encourage people to express their faith that they have in Christ with the outward act of baptism. Uh, verse 39, for this promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Um, and again, I joked about it earlier, but uh, from Jerusalem to here is about as afar off as you can get, right? Pennsylvania County, Caswell, uh, Danville City. Verse 41 says, that day how many were saved and baptized? 3,000 people. So think of it, in one day the church went from 120 people to 3,120 people. And I just enjoyed doing the math on this. If the 12 apostles baptized them all, they each baptized 250 people. Um, but if the 120 all helped, that's 25 they each baptized. So with 120 people, you'd go a lot faster if each were doing 25. I had a day that I baptized that many, and I hope I have a few more here. Uh, Tabernacles had two different times that baptized 100 in one day, or over 100 in one day, one under Pastor Mooneyham, one under Pastor Barber Sr. Uh, very exciting to think about. It may very well have been that they baptized somebody who then turned around and baptized the next one, and then, of course, it would have been more like a dominoes falling and stuff like that. But. But if you are far off today, you can be brought near. And I recognize I've got people before me in the room here, uh, and I've also got people that will be listening later uh, online. And so I just want to take a moment here uh, to be sensitive that God might have used this message to either confirm for somebody their salvation uh, or give them the opportunity to respond. And so let me go ahead and have you bow your heads here. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about The Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.